Well, would you please pray with me as we open up our gospel lesson today from Matthew 18? Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, would you teach us the biblical way of reconciliation? Just as Sarah was just teaching the kids, Lord, would we be as children sitting at your feet, learning afresh how we're called to be family, how we're called to be friends, how we're called to live out these things in the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, well, you probably don't need me to tell you this morning that there is so much tension in the world right now. There's political tension, racial tension, generational tension, tension over COVID-19 and our different responses, our different levels of caution, tension about the schools reopening, tension among the stir-crazy members of our own household, and yes, tension in the church. Anger is, is brewing for so many of us right below the surface and when that's the case, we're all more prone to sin against one another. Uh, and in view of all this, we need Jesus's teaching on reconciliation more than ever right now. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, Jesus sets forth a process of reconciliation that is as simple as it is radical. It's simple uh, because it involves four very clear steps. And it's radical uh, because step one is so hard to obey. Face-to-face -face honesty is a risk, and most of us don't like conflict. But uh, if we will trust Jesus, his simple and radical teaching will bear lasting fruit. I'm 100% convinced of that. No matter how impractical it may seem to us in the moment, it will bear lasting fruit. When I was in college, I had a Christian friend named David who began dating a girl who was an atheist. And he was convinced that he was going to marry her. And uh, it was a little uncomfortable for his Christian friends in the campus fellowship because we knew uh, that the scripture taught that we should not be unequally yoked and that we're only permitted to marry in the Lord, uh, is what the scriptures say. But none of us wanted to say anything. None of us wanted to uh, confront David. Uh, but eventually, my campus minister, who was a really godly and humble guy, uh, sat down with David and had the tough conversation. And to everyone's surprise, David actually decided to end that relationship. And he was sad and we were all sad for him, but he wanted to honor God's word. And he realized um, after that conversation, how hard it would be to be married to someone without having Jesus at the center of it, without having that shared commitment at the very center of their marriage. A few months later, David started dating a Christian girl who is now his wife, and he's since become a pastor. He's one of the most Christ-like men that I know. And I can't help but think about how differently David's life would have turned out if our campus minister wasn't willing to just sit down and have a hard biblical conversation with him. 
Will you grab a Bible with me and turn to Matthew 18 or open it up in your phone app or something to Matthew 18 verses 15 through 20. And, uh, and, and as you're turning there, as you're opening that up, um, we need to remember that that the words of Jesus, are, these words are not simply suggestions or like good recommendations. These are spirit-inspired instructions from Jesus to his people, to his church, and they carry the same authority that they would if the risen Lord Jesus appeared to you right now in your room and spoke them to you in person. Now, Whenever we're interpreting a passage of scripture, it's always good to look at the surrounding text, what comes before, what comes after. Uh, and Jesus's steps for reconciliation are conspicuously sandwiched between uh, his parable of the lost sheep in verses 10 through 14 and his parable of the unmerciful servant in 21 through 35. So um, whereas Jesus's parable of the lost sheep in Luke uh, seems to be about evangelism. Here in Matthew, uh, it actually teaches us to go after our fellow believers who have gone astray or who are backsliding. It tells us to take responsibility for the discipleship of other Christians, our brothers and sisters, and not to say to God, as Cain did, am I my brother's keeper? Because for Jesus, the answer is yes. So that's the first part of the sandwich. And then the, uh, the other part that it's sandwiched in is the parable of the unmerciful servant, where Jesus teaches us about the 70 times seven forgiveness that we owe one another in light of God's unlimited mercy that he's shown towards us. So these two lessons to, to take responsibility for each other's discipleship and that we owe one another unlimited forgiveness, these are really important backdrop for Jesus' teaching on reconciliation and church discipline in verses 15 through 20. So if we don't keep these two things in mind, if we sort of like mishandle the bread, then we're going to mishandle the meat. So what is the meat of Jesus' teaching on reconciliation and church discipline? There are actually four clear steps that he lays out in verses 15 through 17. So step one, if your brother sins against you, Jesus says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, if they listen, then it stops there on step one and no one else needs to know about it. That just remains between you and that person and, and you've, they've listened, wonderful. But if they don't listen, then you move to step two. And, uh, and that is to take one or two others along with you in order that, uh, in the words of Deuteronomy 19, uh, every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, that's probably something we would hesitate to do unless we really thought that they had done something wrong, right? If we thought, actually, I'm probably, probably just as much in the wrong, we're, we're not going to get other people involved. So there's kind of checks and balances here. Um, step three, if he refuses to listen to them, then you tell it to the church. Now, in our context, um, the, the, this was a context of house churches, small groups, really. Um, this might include, um, at this point, maybe taking it to the pastor or taking it to the church vestry, um, but, but going through some sort of official channel of discipline with the church. And, uh, and number four, if he refuses to listen even to the church, then, this is very sad, let him be to you as a pagan and a tax collector. In other words, the fourth step is actually excommunication. They're no longer in 
communion with you. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that we no longer love them or care about them. After all, Jesus taught his disciples to love pagans and tax collectors. But because of their unrepentance, the church can no longer publicly affirm the person's profession of faith as credible. And that's really serious. We're not going to get into the second half of this passage very much. But um, what Jesus says is that there is an alignment between the church's decisions on these matters and heaven's decision on these matters. This is, this is not a small thing. So these are the four steps in brief. And I think it's important to recognize that this is not simply a passage about church mediation, right? Mediation between two members who have a conflict and maybe there's equal fault on both sides. There's not always equal fault on both sides. Uh, and sometimes there's a place for mediation, but this is a passage actually about church discipline. What do you do when a member of the church is sleeping around? What do you do when a member of the church is being dishonest in business or, or they're constantly blowing up on people in anger or they've posted some kind of racist comment on social media. These things matter because we bear the name of Jesus. And according to Jesus, these kinds of things have to be addressed in the church. The church is the family of God, and we have to do business with these things as a family. Now, I want to dig a little bit deeper. We've looked at those four brief steps, but let's dig a little bit deeper. Because when we do, we'll find that there are certain principles of biblical reconciliation in church discipline that emerge. The first principle is the principle of discernment. Now, could you say that out loud? Discernment. All right, we have to use discernment. If someone sins against us or, or offends us, we need to discern whether this is a matter that's really important enough to address with them in person. And if it's important enough for us to address with them in person, is it important enough for that to be the first step in a church discipline process, or is that just an interpersonal matter between us and them? Because sometimes the answer is no, right? Sometimes, sometimes it's not important enough to address in, in one or both of those ways. Proverbs 19.11 says that good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense, it is his glory to overlook an offense. So perhaps the person offended you, but you really sense as you discern it that they meant no harm. Or perhaps it was just a personality quirk or they're just an annoying person, you know? Uh, does any, can I get any amen? Sometimes there are annoying people in the church. You might be annoyed by me. <laughs> uh, and these kinds of things happen in families uh, and no less in the family of God. So if it's, uh, a good principle is if it's small enough um, not to deal with in the way that Jesus lays out here in Matthew 18, then it's probably small enough to just forgive and forget. Amen? First Peter 4, 8 says, Above all, love one another deeply, for love covers over a multitude of sins. Matt, the Peter's talking about bearing with one another in community. And sometimes it's just love just covers over that. We forgive and we forget. However, however, and I think we probably are more likely going to need to hear this than the first part. Um, there are times when it is not loving to overlook an offense. Uh, because maybe because our relationship with them has been truly damaged. 
or perhaps we're concerned that they will keep hurting others in the same way. Or perhaps we're concerned for the, the well-being of their own soul or their own future, just like my campus minister was concerned with the future of my friend. In these cases, confronting the issue directly may just be the most loving thing you can do. Right, so a family that's afraid to address their issues is a dysfunctional family, right? A family that avoids addressing dad's anger problem and always just goes around it or avoids addressing mom's alcoholism and always just kind of goes around it or avoids addressing the constant tension that exists between the younger and the older sibling and is always just going around it. That family is not acting in love but in fear or, or perhaps in despair that changes is, is as ever even possible. Now in the family of God, we're not permitted to act with that kind of despair because we trust the Holy Spirit at work with one another and in one another. And so um, we don't let despair and fear stop us from doing the right thing. In the family of God, it's a mistake to think that love is always passive or conflict avoidant or to confuse love with a kind of cowardly softness. I'm afraid we do this all the time. We think the most loving person in the room is the biggest pushover. But Jesus emphatically was not a pushover. If we follow Jesus's example, we know that love often involves courage, right? Courage and confrontation. We began, of course, by taking the log out of our own eye, as Jesus says, before we remove the speck from our brother's eye. Uh, and we do that in the presence of God. And then we proceed into that conversation, into that confrontation with as much love and humility and clarity as God will grant us. As I said, uh, this needs to be a matter of serious discernment. But one sign, let me just give you one tip, one sign that you might be avoiding an important conflict is if you find yourself already avoiding that person. Because if you're doing that, then you've already jumped to step number four on Jesus's list. You're already sort of treating them as a pagan and a tax collector. You're already kind of writing them off in your heart and you've bypassed step number one. All right, so that's the principle of discernment. The second principle is the principle of discretion. Can you say discretion? You can say that out loud where you're at. All right. We're called to guard the reputation of our brothers and sisters in Christ by being as discreet as possible with the knowledge of their sins and faults. Jesus says in verse 15, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That is, I mean, that is maybe the most important uh, words in this chapter. So we don't tell someone else about it behind their backs. We don't post it or text about it with our friends. We don't bring it to the pastor or, or sort of with like a pious masquerade, bring it to our prayer circles, right? We don't make demeaning or sarcastic comments or roll our eyes every time that person's name comes up. We're so tempted to do these kinds of things, to spread the offense rather than to be discreet. And we might call that by many names, we might call it venting or processing our feelings aloud or some other fancy name, but Jesus calls it sin. Brothers and sisters, I exhort you in the name of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, do not do this. Do not gossip. Do not slander. Do not backbite. 
These things have no place in the body of Christ, and Jesus wants to make that abundantly clear. And it's not just that we're called not to do these things. We're called not to participate in these things. We're called not to listen to it when others are doing this. So if a brother or sister starts telling you about someone else's sins or an offense they caused, your first question should be, hold on a second, hold on. Uh, Have you talked to them about that? And if the answer is no, and and it often is no, you can say something like, "Um, uh, I, I really don't feel comfortable talking about this until you've gone to them directly. And in this way, in, doing, in, in, in practicing these things, you'll safeguard the reputation of others and keep peace in the church community. Proverbs 26, 20 says, without, without wood, a fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. We don't want to participate in gossip. So we're called to be discreet about the sins of others in both our talking and in our listening. Another principle of biblical reconciliation is that the purpose is always restorative, not punitive, restorative. Can you say restorative? All right, so to restore the relationship, to set the person back on the path of discipleship or to bring them back into the fold of the church. Our purpose is not to embarrass people. It's not to browbeat them. Um, or even just to get the matter off of our chest. According to verse 15, what is the hoped-for result when we confront someone in sin? It says that you would gain your brother, that you would gain your brother. There's a restoration of that relationship. David Turner says the aim of discipline is not to put people out. It's actually to keep people in. Church discipline in the Bible is always a rescue operation. This is true, and we see this theme of restoration come up again and again in the New Testament. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So again, we see this theme of restoration when you're confronting someone in their sin. Even in 1 Corinthians 5, which describes the excommunication of a man who is sleeping with his mother-in-law and he's unrepentant about it, um, even when they kick this guy out of the church, the the stated purpose is actually restorative. It says that he may be saved in the day of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 5, 5. When I became a campus minister um, at the age of 22, I quickly realized how difficult it was for me to confront people who were living in unrepentant sin. I just didn't want to do it. I was a people pleaser, and I preferred to love people through agreement rather than through disagreement. And as surprising as it may be to some of you today, that's still my preference. I prefer to love through agreement and not disagreement. I wonder if any of you can identify with that. So anyways, a few months into the job, I decided I needed to call up my wise old campus minister for advice. And uh, I reminded him of the conversation he had with my friend David years back. And he said, oh yeah, I remember that. Man, I thought he would never talk to me again. And I was surprised by that response. And I said, yeah, I thought so too. And so I asked him, well, well, how do you do that? Like, how do you have those kinds of conversations with people? And he told me something that I'll never forget. He said that 
Uh, every time he knows he's about to have that kind of conversation with someone, he prays hard. And this is what he says to the Lord. He says, Lord, I know that this relationship doesn't belong to me. It belongs to you. So I'm laying down this relationship before you. I'm giving it back to you right now. And he says, if, the re if I get the relationship back, I'm going to be very grateful, uh, Lord, but I know it doesn't belong to me. Now, that might sound radical to you guys, but I can now say from experience that it really works. And it works because it lines up with Jesus's spirit-inspired words. Jesus says, if he listens to you, in other words, if he receives the word that you're bringing about his behavior and repents, you have gained your brother. So church discipline is always restorative. Reconciliation is the goal. And this brings us to our next principle, that there is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. As followers of Jesus, we're always called to forgive. 70 times 7, unlimited forgiveness, regardless of whether that person owns up to their faults or owns up to how they've hurt us. And I'm not saying this is easy. This can be excruciating. It's impossible without, without God's help, especially if somebody has hurt us very deeply. But the reason why we offer forgiveness, whether it's received or not, is because that offer is an embodiment of the gospel. After all, the gospel proclaims that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, through Christ... God held out a free offer of forgiveness, of amnesty, before we even decided whether or not we were going to receive that offer. On the other hand, in order for true reconciliation to take place, in order for us to come into a relationship with God, or in order for us to restore a relationship with a brother, there must first be an acknowledgement of sin and a resolve to repent. In other words, uh, the offer of forgiveness is sometimes a one-way street, uh, but the offer of reconciliation, always it always takes two to tango. All right, so we've talked about uh, the tension in the air right now in our cultural moment, that we need Jesus's teaching on reconciliation. We need this. We're annoyed with our brothers and sisters. Maybe our brothers and sisters have sinned against us in some way. Um, maybe we've been carrying around some sort of bitterness toward a, a family member or somebody in the church for a long time. We need Jesus's teaching on reconciliation and church discipline in order to actually deal with this stuff. And we talked about how Jesus gives us four very simple steps. You go to the person alone. If they don't receive it, you, you bring two or three others with you. If they don't receive it, you tell it to the church. If, you don't, if they don't receive it, then you treat them as a Gentile, as a tax collector. In other words, they, they, they lose their credibility as a Christian uh, in the eyes of the community. And I just want to point out, this is something that's easily missed. In our um, kind of Western individualistic way of thinking about religion, um, we find there's an incongruity with the way that Jesus thinks about the church, right? Because in order to receive this kind of discipline from the church, it's not just a matter of, oh, we're, pra we're practicing our faith privately uh, at our home uh, on our own, or maybe we just visit the church every now and then. Um, this kind of discipline involves a commitment to one another, something more like church membership, right? So you might need to ask yourself, could Matthew 18, 15 through 20 ever even apply to me? 
or am I like church hopping or like church dating or not even going to church so that I, I'm not even actually living in the vision of, uh, of the church that Jesus has. So, so we talked about those four steps. That, that's a good question to ask yourself. We've also talked about the principles of discernment, discretion, about the goal of restoration, and about the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. And we've talked about our tendency to avoid conflict. And brothers and sisters, I'm in the same boat. I, I want to avoid conflict. I don't want to have that hard conversation with that father in the faith. I don't want to have that hard conversation with that mother in the faith, faith or that brother or that sister. But I think something we have to ask ourselves is, what kind of community will result if we don't practice these things? Because sometimes it feels impractical to obey Jesus, right? But what kind of community will develop if we don't obey? Well, we might end up being a community who pretends we don't have sin when we actually do. Or we might end up being the kind of community who um, just constantly talks about each other behind each other's back because we have no courage to talk to each other about it face to face. And when that happens, the family of God becomes toxic. That is just not tenable and it doesn't glorify God. We are the family of God. We bear the name of Jesus. We have to meet these things through the blood of Jesus, head on and seek reconciliation. And I'll say it's just a final word because it's been months since we've come to the communion table and communion is a celebration of our vertical reconciliation with God and our horizontal reconciliation with one another. And from the early days of the church, the church has had this practice um, based on Jesus's teaching in Matthew 5, where he says, if you're going to the temple to offer your gift and there remember that your brother has something against you, first be reconciled to your brother and then go and offer your gift, right? So if you know that your brother or sister has something against you, if you know that you need to reconcile with maybe even a member of your family before you come to the Lord's table today, use this part in the service where we do a confession of sin to make that to make that gesture of reconciliation and repentance between you and the father and then use the time before you drive over to the church to receive holy communion today to have that phone conversation or to sit down with that family member and seek the biblical reconciliation that jesus lays out in this passage amen <laughs>